0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food,
2: beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Corin's Tribeca showroom is home to the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan. Stop by to view their exquisitely designed tableware and the rarest natural sharpening stones. They have a whole range of knife services, from repair and rust removal to reshaping and realigning. Corin is dedicated to this ideal— Bringing the highest quality Japanese design to your table so you can experience the unparalleled quality of Japanese craftsmanship in your home or restaurant. For more information, visit Corin.com.
3: Welcome to Dyed Green. I'm Max Sussman.
1: And I'm Kate McCabe.
3: We've got a very special guest on our show this week, and it is Rose Green.
1: Rose is a chef and the co-founder of Four Hands Food Studio, a company which makes fermented food and drinks in Rathaspick, Ireland. We first met Rose a number of years ago when we organized a private dinner at the Fumbly Stables. And we have been in love with her cooking ever since.
3: Rose has a very interesting culinary journey that we talked about From starting off in Michelin star kitchens and starting off on what you might consider to be a very traditional trajectory for a highly talented young chef, and then moving into like a totally unconventional career path, whereas a lot of people will work in Michelin star kitchens and get a lot of experience, and then eventually they'll go on to uh, have their own kitchen or open their own restaurants and just kind of stay in that sort of style. Rose is very focused on balancing work and uh, life, which doesn't often happen in those kind of kitchens. So Four hands Studio is not a restaurant, it's a food business, but one of the main themes is that everything can be done with four hands with her and her partner.
1: We had the incredible opportunity to spend a week with Rose and her niece last summer, when she did all of the food for our now annual writing retreat, Writing the Next World. Rose came to stay with us in Slane and cook lunch and dinner for us every day that we were there. And it was really an incredible experience for everyone involved. To say that her food is... Very heartfelt and nourishing is really an understatement. It's the kind of food that you eat. You can tell it took a lot of time to prepare, but you can also feel the love and energy that was put into it, and it just makes you feel good when you eat it.
3: Yeah, she's super talented and makes her story all the more compelling, I think, because she really just decided to forge her own path in the world of food. And not go down the very well-trodden path of opening your own restaurant, but still staying involved in food, still being very passionate about nourishing people. And that's a lot of what we talk about in the interview.
1: Yeah. And, you know, during one of our meals last summer, we were all sitting down enjoying dinner and we looked outside and out of nowhere, there was this gigantic pig just like moseying around the parking lot chewing on grass looking for tasty snacks and everyone was like where'd this pig come from I mean we were staying on a farm but um you know no no she didn't cook it but she went outside and she was like oh no big deal and then she just went outside and she just escorted the pig uh back to his or her home like it was no big thing and everyone was just even more impressed than they already were so really like rose green is there anything
4: she can't do
3: Well, thanks for coming on the show.
4: Thank you for the invite. It's a pleasure.
3: To get started, maybe we could talk about, you know, a little bit of background of you as a person, as a chef, and how you found yourself basically entering into the food industry back in the day and how that all started for you.
4: Cool. Yeah, well, I guess, like, I knew from a very early age that I wanted to be a chef, or I didn't really know what a chef was, I guess, at that stage. I just knew I wanted to be in food I just loved chopping I loved food I loved touching it I loved eating it I loved everything about it and um, yeah I guess I was influenced around my mother and you know we were a big family we were always eating we were always around a big table And um, I helped my mom as much as I could or as much as she she would let me so I think it all started very young age kind of being in close proximity to to food and farming um, and then, yeah, it was kind of in Ireland, we we have like a CAO form. So that's kind of how you what you need to find a course, something that suits you if you want to go on to third level education. So I found a, a culinary arts course and I just it felt right. I didn't want to do a professional cookery. I wanted to do a little bit more. And with that, that course had like, you know, photography, it had nutrition, it had business, it had international placements. So it just felt like a nice course that if I got into it and I started cooking and then I was like, okay, meh, maybe this isn't for me. I, I had an exit route. And um, so I started that course, a four-year course, and I kind of never looked back. I guess that's when I started to, you know, go to restaurants, kind of learn what fine dining was, learn what Michelin was, learn what all these things were, which were, you know, I, it was completely alien to me. So yeah, I, that's where I got started really. At 17, I went to Dublin for four years and that that was me. In cooking, then. Where did you grow up? I grew up in um, Multifarnham. So it's a little village in the, this very centre of Ireland. So if you come into Dublin and you're going over to Galway, it's just right in the middle. Um, so that was where my um, mom was born. She was born down in kind of in Bogland. Um, and then when my mom and Dad got married. They built a house a little bit up closer towards the road, because obviously Ireland back then, well, still the infrastructure isn't that great, but the roads and things were, um, you know, very basic at the time. So, yeah, we all grew up there. We were all raised on that farm, which was a mixed farm at the time. But then it it became a a dairy farm when my brother kind of took over, I guess, like most things um. As time went on, a lot of farms like specialized in one type of farming. So that turned into a dairy farm, and then my dad, like all the time I was growing up, um, my dad would drive like fifteen minutes to where he was born, and he would look after the farm there. And then um, he always wanted to move back there, so that's that's where we are now. So that's in Rathaspic, It's like towards Longford, a little bit more north, and that's now a beef farm that my brother runs.
3: Was there a lot of pressure for you to stay in farming or were you encouraged to go out and strike your own path? Uh...
4: Um, No, I guess it was never really something I thought about. And there was like the dairy farm, my brother from a really young age, he just kind of like I think he was seven or eight and he started milking cows. You know what I mean? It was kind of. It's not like he w- it was pointed to him. You're you're the going to be the the dairy farmer, but he just it was something that clicked with him, I guess. Um, and then it just was a nat- natural thing that he took over that farm. And then my uh, brother Connor, who took over my dad's farm, he yeah, I guess he had an interest in it as well. And um, it's never something I I guess when I came back to Ireland a few years ago, I was you know I I thought about it a little bit more, like oh why was there not an option. Why was that? Why did I never think about that? Or I guess, yeah, it, it did cross my mind, but definitely no pressure for me to to take over. And my dad actually advised me not to be a chef as well when I told him that's what I wanted to do. He was like, oh, that's too hard. That's too hard. You should be a nurse. Like that's an easier job.
3: I would say like if you have a farmer telling you that a career path is too hard, that's like a red flag because that seems like one of the hardest jobs yeah. that there is, you know? You're like, oh, what am I getting yeah, into Yeah, definitely.
4: Here? There's no breaks, no nothing. But uh, I guess, you know, back then and still now, it was a very male kind of male-dominated industry as well. And he had his concerns, but my parents have always supported every one of us in no matter what we wanted to do. So there's a few of us that went down a more artistic and kind of creative route, which some parents might might be a little bit nervous, but they just let us be. So it was good.
3: I think it's like really interesting how the, the industry has changed and the perception of it has changed. I mean, I can see where he was coming from, like a culinary career in Ireland probably didn't used to mean uh, creative expression, right? It was probably just really mm-hmm. focused on a very much more of like a working class kind of like, you know, you're, yeah, you're doing, and- yeah. And that's not exactly mm-hmm. how it is anymore. So there's like a lot that uh, you mentioned that I think we want to talk about. Um, Interesting to have like a house construction moment in your past too, because that's something that you are working on now. But maybe going back to just where you were at age twenty one, finishing your coursework and deciding what to do next. Did you jump into restaurant kitchens in Ireland? And when did you decide to go abroad? And what came next for you?
4: Yeah, I guess I I, I left Ireland straight away. To be honest, I I graduated and. Um, I had my graduation, I think it was in October, and I had been over in Scotland. I decided to to move to Scotland. Um, a, a couple of friends of mine were moving over there. They were in different kind of fields. But, yeah, I, I kind of wanted to, to go and to... Um, I was a bit drawn to there. I guess one of my sisters lives in Scotland as well. So I always would have visited a lot. So she lives in Glasgow. um, So I was really intrigued. I guess Scotland has a lot in common with Ireland as well. So I basically decided to move to Edinburgh. I got a job offer over there as like a a commie chef in the Balmoral. So it was number one restaurant. It was a one-star restaurant at the time. I'm not really sure what it's at now, but it's quite a classical kind of kitchen so I started there and I I think I was there for about a year and a half and it was a really good team really good like solid kind of grounding and it was a fabulous place to be to start off my career I think because there was really good technical kind of chefs there that you know because when you're in culinary school or whatever you're learning but then it's really when you're working full-time somewhere that you get to really hone in on on your skills and see what really interests you and so that that's where I kind of started I guess uh my head chef at the time had kind of pushed me into doing this uh, competition it was young chef young waiter and a few former chefs had done it and he was like oh you should really do this so that was in my first year there so I ended up coming second in that competition and then one of the um the judges was David Everett Matthias down in Cheltenham. He had uh, you know, Sauvage a two star, and he like contacted me and he said, "For me, you know, it was a very close competition, and I, I wanted you to to be what, number one. So I want to offer you like a week stage in my restaurant. So that was pretty pretty nice, because um, I had it was actually my ex boyfriend at the time there. He was a sous chef, and uh, that was his favorite restaurant. So I think he was quite jealous because." He uh, had done the competition before and uh, he didn't win or come second. And then his favorite chef had uh, offered me a little, a week stash in his restaurant. So The beginning of the end
3: for you uh, guys.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much, yeah. So I did a week there and then I ended up getting uh, a job offer. Um, And yeah, and I moved there. So that was after a position became available and he contacted me and I I moved. So uh, it was good timing as well because... I was in scotland for a year and a half and i had done all the sections and you know as a young chef you kind of you're just eager to learn and learn and that means moving a lot of the time so uh, it was kind of at a good time uh, to to make a change
3: cool so you pursued um fine dining for many years and then and now you're not so fill us in on the do you know what happened yeah Are you looking at me? Do you want to say something?
1: Oh, no, I just I think that you went to you've spent some time in other countries right after that as well. So I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I was just
4: wondering before we sort of skip over that.
3: Yeah. No, let's hear Yeah. Just hear about what what, what came next. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, No worries.
4: Um, Yeah. So I guess like that was still very early on in my in my career, I guess. And I went I went down to Cheltenham and. It wasn't really the kitchen for me. I guess I, I was quite particular in that I, you know, I, I needed to be in a kitchen that was respectful to its its employees, but also to produce. It was something just really critical for me. I, I don't know what it was, if it was me growing up on a farm or or what, or just my my person. But I needed that, and it's just something I didn't find there um, in regard to produce. And I just I wasn't really very fulfilled. So. It didn't, I ended up actually doing that competition again with the chef. He was like pushing me to do it. I hated doing any of those things and pushed me to do it again. I ended up winning that and then, um, doing a little travel in Italy. And I was just like, Oh God, I can't go back here. Like I can't do this. I can't continue to kind of, you know, just work with produce that just didn't sit well with me and sell it to customers for, you know, quite a high price. So
3: what was it like a lot of waste or was there like bringing in products that were like from far parts of the world that wasn't very sustainable? Or like, what was it that was the... It
4: was, it was, yeah, it was buying from, you know, supermarkets and selling as like, uh, you know, it, it was, everything was down to the cost of things. And um, it was like, you know, there was certain products that were really good. Um, and I guess they were pushed at the forefront. And then there was other items that, you know, were on the plate and they didn't seem to matter where they came from. So I just had a problem with that. You know, somebody comes to a restaurant paying a price for something, you you want them to be, you want to be honest about what, where something is coming from and you want to be be able to stand behind it, or at least I did anyway. So I guess that just, that was something that from an early age, I guess I I knew that was important to me. So then when I, when I was moving on to other places, it was something that was I knew I had to look out for. Just because somewhere was two stars, or just because somewhere was books and was recognized, and whatever, didn't mean that.
1: Well, yeah, and you still you still see that I think in the industry, right? Yeah. Like farm to table mm-hmm. is pretty common these days. I mean, not not at every restaurant, but at a lot of top restaurants. But you know, the farm can mm-hmm. literally be anywhere in the world. It's like a little bit.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, all, yeah. 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 It's like, there's the perception and the reality of like what happens behind the scenes. And a lot of people don't ever get to find out. A lot of people don't ever get to find out unless you go back there and, mm-hmm. and work for a week and see the truck coming in or see what where stuff actually yeah. really does come from.
4: Yeah, no, for sure. So, um, yeah, I guess from there, where did I go from there? I moved back. Yeah. I moved back home. Actually, my dad was, was kind of sick at that time. And so I wanted to move back home and take a little break. So I came home um, and spent some time at home and was just kind of thinking about what I wanted to do next. So I decided to move to Australia. So um, I spent a few months at home, kind of re-centered myself and then Oh, no, before that, sorry. I, I stayed in Ireland for a, for about a year. I worked in Thornton's, Kevin Thornton, Kevin and Muriel Torrentons, up in, in Stevens Green in Dublin. But I, I had a goal of, like I said, I'm going to Australia in like six months. I would really love to work here for six months, but after that, I'm kind of going. So he was like, normally I don't take people on for, you know, for anything less than a year, but let's let's give it a go or whatever and I had always made a conscious decision when I started in my culinary arts course it was just it it was it was this thing I don't know if it's still around but it was like female chef equals pastry chef and when I was like put up against that and doing my first like um internships in places I was always put in the pastry with the female chef and I was like okay there's no way that I'm I, I started to go, I don't want to do pastry because it was just this stereotypical thing. So I was like, no, no way. Um so I didn't, I never did pastry up until that point. And Kevin was like, look, um, our chef's turn in the kitchen. We need a pastry chef at the moment. We need that section filled. So um, that was my first time working in pastry. And I, I worked there for, for six months and actually I really enjoyed it, really enjoyed working with Kevin, just the produce, it was just, it was just another level, like his attention to detail, his You know, his connection with producers and his thoughtfulness about everything um, and his madness as well was was wonderful. So that was a really nice experience to work back in Ireland as a chef for a few months before kind of moving on again. So
1: how important do you think it is for a chef to get experience working in other countries. It seems like that was something that you had your mind set on right from the beginning. And I imagine that the culinary landscape when you graduated from your program was much different from, you know, what it became once you moved back and decided to stay.
4: Yeah. um, Yeah, definitely. I, I think it's really important. Well, I think it's a luxury as well to be in the industry that you can move and travel and kind of and work in different places and experience uh, new cultures and kind of, you know, develop as uh, your career as well. So I think it, it's, for me, it was very important to do that because it was interesting as well to to work with different produce and to, you know, work in different kind of cultures and things like that as well. Um, but yeah, no, I think it's really good to do that. I certainly would advise it to any young chef is, is to move and to try and work for a period of time somewhere. 'Cause you know, what as I got older there was a lot of staging. People would work for a few weeks or a month and they'd travel all over the world and they'd do this and I think it's fantastic as well. But I think working and really gaining a lot from one space and from, from a team of chefs, um, I think it's it's very rewarding as well.
3: Yes, yeah, so I did want to ask about like was it okay if I asked that question? Now? Yes.
4: <laughs> God.
3: No, I just wanted to talk a little bit about your like obviously you've ha- you had a really long and really successful um you know early career in like Michelin dining, fine dining and um mm-hmm. and then you kind of took a turn away from that and I wanted to talk about that part of your career in your life and mm-hmm. like what led to that.
4: Um yeah, I guess well, I was in Australia, I spent a year there. I spent a number of months working in a restaurant that was um, it was like the Royal Mail. It was like a number one in number one in Australia. I think it was like regional restaurant in Australia. And it was really, really hard core. Like it was just there was very limited staff and I was working six days a week and I was just like, okay, I was beaten. I was beaten down and I I was considering staying in Australia a little bit longer. And I just said, I'm coming home and I, I just I need to get out of this industry. It's too it's just not for me. And I was thinking at that point, I was like, I want to maybe study nutrition or I want to do something else. And I had a friend of mine that I had worked with in the um, Champignon Sauvage. She was working in Belgium in this restaurant called In the Wolf. And I was like, just, I really didn't know what I was going to do. Um, and I ended up going over there for a week and I started, I, I just fell in love with it again because there was this new element that was introduced to me, it was fermentation. Like they had, they had these fermented carrots that were in like a brine in the back kind of shed outside. And it was the first time I tasted anything like that. And I was like, okay, this is something new. This is something exciting. And, you know, I uh, yeah got excited about kitchens again. So I forgot all about me like saying to myself, oh God, I need to get out of this industry. It's killing me. And um, I ended up spending a few years there. Slowly, slowly kind of uh, realizing that I was definitely needed to get out soon. Um, But in the process, I had a, a wonderful amount of years there and kind of worked with lots of different people coming from lots of different cultures and seeing a restaurant go from, you know, being started to be talked about to becoming, you know, quite known throughout the world and I got to travel a lot do you know different kind of events and lots of things like that and the wonderful thing about there as well was the influence of farmers and I was very lucky to quickly go from chef de partie to basically running the kitchen I was doing research and development and then I was running the kitchen and then I was looking at sourcing and all of these things so it was a really interesting kind of part and a kind of, I guess, a big step in my career at that point. Um, but then I just had this niggling feeling that I just, I it was, I guess I was getting older. I was seeing the, the younger versions of me coming along in the industry again. And I was kind of looking back and I was kind of going to go oh, this is, you know, I just don't like what is repeating itself here. Um, and I just felt like, I um, felt like I needed a change. And I felt like I was kind of, learning more about nutrition and wellness and, and you know, these things like fermentation, all these things that are so important. And I guess I was realizing that all this work that we're doing, it's the most fundamental thing is that we're nourishing ourselves and that we're nourishing the people that are coming through the door. And I was just looking around me and I just seen like lots of young people just wearing themselves out. And I was worn out and I just, I came to the point where I just, that was it. Enough was kind of enough for me. And, um, I needed to, I needed to stop. Um, and that's what I did. <laughs> yeah.
3: <clears throat> yeah. It's like really interesting to, to hear about, you know, coming up against some of the like realities or whatever, like things that can't, I don't know if they can't be changed or if they just don't ever seem to be changed. Um, even <laughs> though, you know, a lot of operators and a lot of owners and a lot of chefs, more now than ever before have really good intentions around changing those things. And then, uh, yeah, the patterns of overwork, you know, Mm -hmm. just start to repeat, repeat themselves. And then you can see that with your perspective of having been through that a few times yourself. So.
1: Well, it's also making me think about all the food that you prepared for us during the writing retreat last year and about how the emphasis, when you go to restaurants, um, you know, most chefs are trying to make the most delicious food they can, but are they really intentionally trying to t- trying to nourish your bodies, which is which is what I feel like you exactly what you did when we were with you for a week last year.
3: And, and souls,
1: and souls, bodies, and souls. and souls. Exactly. Yeah.
4: Yeah. I guess like um, it is something I know there is a big there is a movement and it's very wanted and very real and very needed that. You know, our kitchens need to become more sustainable for in in every aspect. You know, not just the food that is being uh, coming in there or going out from the kitchen, but for this for the staff, all of the staff as well. But it's very, very, very difficult to have a restaurant of a certain level. And to be able to have a balance, you know, we are in the Wolf. We went from a team of four to a team of like 20 in the kitchen and more than half were stagiaires. You know, there were people that were coming to learn and we relied on them because it was such an intense, um, intense environment with a, a very high attention to detail, a very high level of, of labor uh, needed to produce um, the menu each day. So it's very difficult at that level. And. Um, because it's not like it's an industry at that level. Definitely not where we were. It was that's raking in money. You know what I mean? Like you're you're charging a lot, for a menu. It seems like a lot of money, but it, it to produce the basic produce and then you pay your staff. Then you pay. You know, nobody is making millions. There is obviously of making millions, but it isn't. The, yeah, it's not an easy one.
3: Mostly, the the people making millions are the people that are coming to eat there. <laughs> not the people that are <laughs> yeah. working there anyway. Yeah. 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 Sometimes. And yeah, but not even, yeah, I think there's a big misperception. There's also that misperception among a lot of like younger cooks that the, that the owners of the restaurant are always raking in millions and that's the higher mm-hmm. you get, you're like, Oh, a lot of that money just goes in and goes out. Um, and you're, yeah. it gets spent on the people and the product that is getting brought in to make that experience, mm-hmm. you know? lot of it
4: yeah yeah and there's only so much you can charge as well so you know um it needs to be reasonable so that's why i kind of when i started kind of thinking okay well i'm moving towards something else it it was really important to me that whatever food i was creating it it didn't need 10 people or 20 people it needed me at a minimum like and maybe another person because as well when you're at that level you're not really cooking anymore and like i felt like i lost all my creativity i was just managing people, dealing with issues. Um, And it wasn't a very positive kind of place. And I wanted to get back to the basics of using my hands, my mind and feeding people and creating some kind of dialogue along that way of, you know, the work that where something is coming from, what's done to it on a very basic level and what the end result is and and sharing that experience with people.
3: So, and so you you said using your hands and your project right now is called Four Hands. I guess that's probably ties into uh, the whole parody, idea yeah. of, um, which makes sense, but I let, I was the, um, so maybe you could talk about that, but was the idea, was it forming at this time? And was the idea generally just like you said, to try to do something where you would be the one and you wouldn't maybe have to deal with a lot of other people. And can you talk about wh- where, whether the idea mm-hmm. was already forming or whether you needed more time for that mm-hmm. to like marinate and appear or.
4: Well, I guess to a degree it was forming because it, before I left Belgium, I had kind of, we were talking about setting up some kind of production and, um, you know because I, I had developed a lot of fermented products i had worked with antwerp university about like you know all the benefits and doing these different studies and stuff and and um, we were thinking about creating products and selling them um but so it, it had been in my head uh, then like what happened was i met my partner Margot. she came into she did a stage in the wolf for her sins <laughs> she spent two weeks there as like a you know she was older coming into the industry older a lot more sense as well and then we just we had a a very instant um relationship that went from zero to to everything and uh, she was a big part of making me realize that I guess giving me the confidence to make that step away because when all you know is cooking it's kind of hard to to make that step so yeah we we kind of Decided to to take a break. We bought a camper. We bought like this 82 Heimer from Holland from this dodgy Russian guy That I think was it was definitely I don't know what was going on but thankfully my brother-in-law in in Germany helped us out and we had we bought this Wonderful slow beast of a, a of a camper and we just I needed to really I needed a break I needed to to not be working and I needed to kind of Yeah, just I guess, think about my next step and think about what way I wanted to be in, in an industry that I was finding really difficult. And um, so, yeah, we just traveled and I guess took time to, you know, I had been invited to cook at a few places. So we kind of made those journeys in between kind of more enjoyable and we traveled, visited farms. Uh, I wanted to learn a lot more about farming and because i would gotten really close relationships with some farmers in Belgium, but never got too much time to actually physically sit down and and be there. So that was a big aim was to go to these, go, go visit different farms, different producers, learn how they were working, um, and kind of try to figure out what, what our next step was. I guess the main one was where we were going to be, like where we, you know, Margot is is French. I was in Belgium for a big chunk of time. I'd been kind of moving all over. And yeah, so that was the big thing was, where to settle so that was that took took some time
3: I feel like it's just so like interesting just like the that you were able to recognize where you were at I don't know like psychically in terms of like the burnout the level of burnout and being able to I guess Margot helped as you said helped you understand a lot of that and make those decisions because I think that it's kind of under just the way, the, the level to which people do like burn out parts of themselves in restaurant kitchens, but then don't really change their, uh, they just keep going back. and I,
1: Yeah, or they don't even leave.
3: Yeah, they never leave. And yeah, I'm just like, I'm having a moment myself because a lot of what you're saying is like, resonates with my own personal <laughs> path and journey. And just like, I think back to some of the, I think probably the first time that I did burn myself out that I never really fully kind of... Um, You never really fully recover from that in terms of being able to, if you recognize it into being able to like dive right back into that kind of work, it doesn't feel as good anymore. It doesn't feel the same. It doesn't feel as fulfilling, even if there's aspects of it, like you said, where you're still learning.
1: Do you think, Mm -hmm. do you think some of that is like, because a lot of kitchens have an abusive nature to them? I just know that I've worked at places where You know, the chefs are telling their line cooks that they aren't any good um, or there's some kind of like a codependency sort of built into to the way that the kitchens are run. Because it's making me think that if you have like a really healthy work environment, like I'm thinking about the fact that we originally met you through dinners at the Fumbly and we've only heard really amazing things about that place and that the way they nurture the workers that are the um, Mm -hmm. culinary folks that come through there and just kind of the community atmosphere that they create. And so I'm just one, uh, you know, that's just, I guess, a thought that I had. Um, If like kitchens actually were, you know, if the actual work that you were doing, putting love into the food and making this food, that's nourishing people in a nurturing environment. I mean, you wouldn't feel that kind of burnout and you wouldn't really like feel like you were stuck in a place.
4: Yeah, hundred percent. I think definitely there is there is places there, like Fumbly being one of them around Ireland. There's lots of places like that that their focus is on you know, a, a balance, you know, staff are working maybe four days a week. It's a very much more casual kind of experience and stuff like that. And I think if you used to stay in that, um, you definitely, you do feel a little bit more secure. And I, I can imagine, Max, yourself, no more than myself, you kind of, when you've been through That intensity, like Margot talks about sometimes, like the way, you know, I would come home after work and um, she'd have stayed up and I would be like falling asleep or we'd be in the middle of conversation and I'd be falling asleep. And then talking about something like, you know, I would be on the pass in my head. I'd be on the pass, like sending whatever dish. And it was just, it's such an intense kind of thing that you don't—you can't leave it behind. You know, it's, it's there with you. You're kind of carrying it with you all the time, unless you really, and it, it's really difficult as well. What I found really difficult was was kind of accepting the fact that I wasn't going to continue on that. Because when I left Belgium, like I was, you know, I had people asking me, oh, are you opening your own place? When are you opening it? What's happening? What's happening? And there's this pressure that you're kind of going, okay, well, I've been doing this for so many years and, you know, I have a bit of a reputation and I have all this experience and, you know, um, it's scary to kind of, to go, okay, well, I just, I know I can't, I can't do that anymore. And I guess it is something you have to really, you know, it took quite a while as well, because in between that period I had toyed and I had been in different places and tried, like I was in Coombs Head Farm for six months as well. And we tried to develop like a really sustainable environment and it just, it it, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't feasible. So I just, I knew that um, I needed something different and that something different became what is four hands now. It's not maybe perfect um, and nothing ever is, but it it gives me a balance of things, even though everything is very unbalanced at the moment when you throw in everything else in life, like renovating a house and family and all of that kind of thing. But, uh, you know, uh, I guess, it fits a few of the things that are really important to me. The connection to producers, you know, the fact that I'm using my hands, I'm making products and making, you know, different things. And I know that it's food that when people get it, it's nourishing them as well. Um, and then alongside that, we were doing our dining events before COVID, which, you know, which were really good as well. And now I guess I have the pleasure of very, um, the odd time cooking for you guys, which is lovely as well. So, um, yeah, there's a bit more of a balance and it's kind of on my own terms. That's exactly and, the phrase um, that
3: was in, in my head. Like whose ter- whose terms are you, um, operating on or under, what is it on? Whose terms are you operating on? And I think there's something that's like fundamentally, uh, there's something that you can't really get out of in terms of like the structure of what a restaurant is in terms of, You know, what you're doing is you're waiting for people to come to you and tell you what they want and Mm -hmm. over and over and over and over again um, versus what you're doing, which is you're saying, you know, here's what I have. Here's what I'm offering. And here's how you can here's how you can get it. And here's the deal, basically. And I think that like that to me is that taking back of a lot of the autonomy that you lose with just the, the fundamental nature of what a restaurant is, you know, we've been eating for like we've always needed to eat, but a restaurant's really only like a couple hundred years old in terms of like this idea that, you know, you come in, you sit down, you present it with a menu, you get to pick whatever you want from it. That's where everything originates from. That's where the brigade system comes from. And everything else kind of stems from that. So the way that you have devised, you know, so I was maybe maybe thinking you could talk a little bit about the model of what Forehands is and what it does and how people uh, how you're able to still nourish and, and feed uh people without going outside of the traditional restaurant model. Like what is it?
4: Um yeah, so I guess there's a few aspects of forehands. Um we started out with products. So our focus is fermented foods really. We source organically grown produce with different producers in Ireland, mainly. And then there's certain elements that we would import as well, you know, ginger, turmeric, these kind of things. So we make a range of different products. Kombucha is, is one of them and um, probiotic juices, uh, sauerkrauts, vinegars. Yeah. So we make a range of different things that we like ourselves and that we feel good having them in our daily kind of diet. And then we started off just selling them to a couple of stores and that kind of developed from that, you know, we always go very kind of slow. I guess it's something that definitely Margot has a a huge part on that because I, with my years in kitchens, I always want to be like firing ahead and, you know, just like I'm 10 steps ahead of myself and Margot kind of slows me down a little bit and just, we think, and we, we just allow things to happen on a more Natural kind of process. So it's really nice that things have grown uh, in the products line of things. That, you know, it, then we started getting people asking us shops in Dublin, oh, I've heard of your products. Could we stock them? And uh, things just naturally moved on from there. So now we have a few shops that we're really happy with that we really like going and giving them our products because we like the people, we like the spaces, we like what they're about. You know, a lot of it is about community and creating little hubs. Of community, Um, and one of the best ways of doing that is through food. So being able to share our little bit with different places is is wonderful. And I guess along with the product side of forehands, we've recently launched like a subscription. And we kind of had enough of the shops because you know it's something we need to deliver ourselves. It's a lot, Um, and we never want to be in more shops around the country. It would just work so we felt like if we created a package that people could get on a monthly basis and create a a direct connection with each person so we can tailor something to them so we don't have like an online shop that people click this that and the other and we communicate directly with the person we've got a newsletter yeah we just have a direct connection so we tell them what we have Um, what new things is going on and we share how you can introduce these things into your diet and the benefits the flavors you know all of the aspects of that and uh, so that's just recent recently started this year that's something we're really excited about you know it's just nice to have that you know direct contact with somebody and i guess we have that in the shops with the person that we're selling them to and we sometimes get the nice surprise of meeting somebody when we deliver that are buying our products and it's nice and but you know to have people throughout the country that emailing us and telling us we really like this or what do you think will this help that it's a lot more personal and that feels good
3: well i was kind of asked like you know it sounds like um like it sounds like things are going really well and a lot of people are responding really positively and there's a lot more interest to the products that you're making so like you're, then it's called four hands, right? So, like, would you ever be bringing in people to help you out? Or is there like sort of a a limit to how much you can do? And is that a conscious thing, or would you think you'd be able to to grow at all? How do you think about these issues?
4: We it we sometimes maybe have some help, like my niece or something, you know. But we're really really sure that we do not <laughs> want to go down the road of. One, it's we wouldn't be able to pay anybody. Right. (laughs) um, And two, I don't think we could invite anybody into work in our chaotic kind of domestic scale, (laughs) small scale kind of, uh, it would be a bit scary. But um, we want to, it has limits because, you know, we're sure that we want to do it again on our own terms, like in our own way. And so... You know there is limitations in that like who knows down the road but we have ideas of maybe opening a, a shop or something that we you know in that way we would probably need some assistance and um, but for the moment for this it's just whatever we can do together and um, myself and margo that's kind of mm-hmm
1: So uh, your name came up in a conversation that we had recently. Uh, We might've actually brought it up (laughs) now that I think about it, but we recently (laughs) spoke with Harrison Gardner about common knowledge and building your own. And you had told us last year that you had gone through the program and that you were working on renovating a space of your own. Is that where you're living right now? Or is that something that you're still working on?
4: Uh, no, so that's that's um that's something we're we're working on. It's um where we're living now is a little it's a barn. It's a stone barn that's on the family farm. So my where my brother runs the farm, it was this stone barn that was used like there was pigs in one side and the grain was stored in the loft, and it was just when we moved home, it was idle. Um and we renovated here. So that was our first little kind of mini renovation. Um and then we bought, four and a half years ago, we bought a farmhouse, it's over 200 year old stone farmhouse, 15 minutes from here. And it's got 1.6 acres of land. It's really beautiful. It's like a really nice shaped land with like old hedging around it. Um, and the house, is. Just, we just fell in love with it. Um, it's like a traditional two up, two down. So two rooms downstairs, two rooms upstairs. And there's a little adjoining single story house or a single story shed connected to it so yeah that is a, a very much an ongoing project i guess this year uh, like a year and a half ago i would have done the common knowledge course year one or um one and two and um yeah it's an amazing amazing experience Um i guess i had a little bit of experience with you know Construction very basic, and um, I got a bit of confidence from here. And um, this is like a stairs along here that you can see it there. And uh, Margo built that with like old uh, wine boxes, um, so it's like a paddle stairs, like a Japanese paddle stairs. So you know it doesn't take up much space, and we can use storage in the little. We put little um, um, hinges on them, so uh, we went from the camper to this. So we're kind of used <laughs> to small spaces. Um, but yeah, the house is, that's a big project and it's, um, I guess we were dreaming a little bit when we bought the house and then now we're really knowing the amount of work that goes into it. But I absolutely love it, I just, it's, it's just another way of using your hands, you know. It's a different way, but there's lots of kind of similarities between using your hands in food and using your hands in construction, you know, yesterday I was at the house and I was doing some lime plaster and it's just like icing a cake, you know, it's making, mixing a a lime mortar is like mixing. there's lots of similarities. And I feel like, um, cooking is something that we all know it's a fundamental, we need to do this to to eat well and, and building is, it's something that is so important as well. You know, we're handing over all of this, um, Suddenly it's so important having shelter over your, your head and um, to massive industry, like in the similar way as an industrial kind of um, food production and stuff like that. It, we really need to 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 get it back in our own hands. And it's wonderful what Harrison and, and the, the guys down there in Common Knowledge are doing because they're empowering people to to rethink and to, I guess, give them more options. You know, we're... We're a small artisan food business. We have a very modest kind of income, and um, we don't want to have like a massive mortgage over our heads that we're paying back, and that we have, you know, that we'll have to rethink how we're working. We don't want to have that. We want to be able to do things on our term on our terms again. And it's hard work. Um, I was there over at the house this week, like three days putting insulation into the roof and um and doing all these things that are you know they're it's hard work but it's so rewarding and it's a very exciting project and it's probably going to go on for (laughs) for a little bit um (laughs) of a longer time but it's getting there and um yeah it's wonderful and i guess i don't think we knew what we were taking on but um we do now and I, i don't regret it at all Um, And although it's very, very challenging at times, but um, I I can picture what it is going to be. And I'm enjoying the process along the way, even with the stress. But um, yeah, it's wonderful.
3: Yeah, it's so interesting the way you connect the working with your hands on your on the house, you know, with food, because I think like there's a lot of ways that the sort of like real estate and housing crisis uh, is connected to. The way that like restaurants operate as well like there's the rent and operating costs the way that they squeeze restaurants ends up making life harder for people that work in the restaurants okay. and also the way that it's harder to find um affordable housing makes it makes it harder for restaurants to hire people and makes people have to travel mm-hmm. farther so it's like the housing and the food and the industries are really interrelated so it's it's harder
1: to support a family
3: yeah yeah yeah, for sure
4: yeah
3: so the connection there is interesting
4: fundamentals of life you know what i mean to live a healthy life you need to feel secure you need to you know you need to have a nourishing food coming in and you need to have a comfortable space that you feel safe and you feel secure and you're you can you know share all the wonderful moments that you that life is all about. So, I think it's lovely that those two things can be tied so closely together. Like after I did the course down in in Common Knowledge, um, I, I met such a wonderful group of people. And before I left, like I've been talking about my project because a lot of people were there because it was you know they didn't have they knew that they wanted to have a project in the future, but they didn't have the project in their hands at that time. And I guess I was a bit different in that. I had the house and I kind of had the, I knew exactly what I was going back to. So Harrison was like, I was talking about maybe doing something there. And Harrison said, just before you leave, make a date and get people there because strike while the iron's hot, you know what I mean? And I I listened to him and I, uh, within like a month we had a four day, um weekend like kind of build weekend organized at the house and you know we had kombucha on in a keg we had you know I was cooking like lovely food Margo was making little sweet treats and you know we had like the best weather that you could possibly imagine we actually had to put shelter up because it was so sunny at points you know we had a like amazing group of people come and share a weekend that I'll never forget you know what I mean and we got so much work and uh, we, we removed all the uh, the lime plaster from the exterior, from the interior. We took out uh, the timber suspended floor as well. It was just, it was amazing. So, yeah.
1: That's so cool.
3: Well, maybe we'll come to the next one, the next work weekend.
4: Yeah, we're actually going to be doing a, a hemp building course in May with Steve Allen. He's um, he's based in Kerry and he's um, a hemp builder. He's got like two books that are really, really cool. Um, and I contacted him uh, last year, cause I seen on, on his website that he was doing. Um, so he does courses periodically and I was asking him if he had anything coming up or if he was planning one for next year. Like I told him about our project and, um, he kind of got back to me straight away saying, I definitely like to, to consider doing a course at your space. So in the end of May, we have five day hemp building course. Um, yeah, that's going to be, Really exciting. So,
1: but you can't grow hemp in Ireland, isn't that right? Do you have to? You have to get it from somewhere else. You no, know,
4: you can. It just you can grow hemp in Ireland. It's um, there's a lot of paperwork involved in it, um, but you can. There's a few companies that grow hemp and produce like hemp oil. Uh, like CBD oil, and then the hemp for building is a byproduct of that. So, and um, it's the shiv. So it's like the real hard fibrous uh, stalk of the hemp plant that's kind of broken down. And um, the hem- I, it's not developed in Ireland that much. In that we have, you know, I think the machinery and stuff like that to process. the the shiv is is quite um, and a lot of it's very mechanized so and the hemp that i'll be using i think is going to be french and and the lime as well is probably going to be french but there is a hemp cooperative in ireland that are trying to kind of get farmers growing and then hope that they can you know have that cooperative working together to be able to process all of the different elements so that we will have that byproduct, which is an amazing building material in the country as well. So that, that'll be, that'll be lovely in the future as well.
3: What are you using the hemp for in terms of the build, in terms of building?
4: Um, so be, hemp, like you can make it, I have limited knowledge. I have never mixed it myself, but I've just read about it and, um, engaged with some different people. Um, hemp is is brilliant in that it has it's very insulative. So our our house is a stone uh, house with like sixty centimeter um, thick walls, um, which are lots of like thermal mass. But we need to insulate um, insulate that. So we're going to be putting like a hemp plaster. Um, so that's going to be a mix of water, hemp shiv, and lime. And we're going to be putting about say five, six, seven centimeters onto the wall. Um, so that's going to be your insulation. It's going to go directly onto your stone wall. So that's what we're going to do um, as our insulation on the exterior walls of the house. Uh, we're going to do the floor as well. So that's going to be with a different type of lime. So a harder lime and probably other things in there that I'm not really sure about. Um, but we're going to do the floor. And then we're also going to do, we've got the little stone shed that's connected to the house. It, it potentially had some kind of, maybe farm door or something at one point. So we need to rebuild a wall um, and connect it into the house. So we're gonna be basically insulating or ca- casting um, a hempcrete wall um, to the exterior of one of the walls and and taking that along to join into the house. Um, and Yeah, so we're gonna be doing kind of all of the aspects, floor walls, um, insulation, and then, our aim is when we renovate the house and get it kind of, you know, completely sealed up and airtight, uh, we're going to be building an extension. So the extension is going to be our kitchen living kind of space and we're going to use hempcrete to build the Well, we'll see how May goes, but uh, our aim is to use hempcrete for the entire structure of that.
3: Cool. Sounds amazing. Well, mm-hmm. I feel like yeah. there's a lot going on, but is there anything that we missed about, you know, your, your story right now that you want to share or other future plans that you have that are, are, something that you want to share?
4: Um, yeah, there's a lot going on, I guess at the moment. Um, and yeah, I think in the back of it, like Margo would really love to, to open somewhere to have a shop or to have a space. Um, you know maybe it will involve food in some form but not in that traditional form of you know a restaurant or something like that but we have that in the back of our minds somewhere that it would be lovely to to have our own space and to welcome people to And um, so that's it's not something it's not in development but it's just something we're thinking about it And um, yeah and then we're just kind of continuing on with 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 life and trying to you know get the house organized and i guess a big thing that i really want to get back to is growing a bit more is you know we have a little bit of a garden here we have some ducks and, and hens and i with everything that's going on well we don't have much time for that so i'm looking forward to a bit more time to to enjoy being outside growing our own food and um you know just grounding a little bit with all of that so that's definitely in the pipeline is having more time that's not that's not rushing around and making food and building things
3: cool well it seems like you're in such an intentional state of controlling your own destiny that i hope you can create that time right
4: no i know it'll be there it it is there it's just a matter of yeah moving you know we're stages slowly slowly yeah but um I guess it's not trying to rush things either. I guess that's important to just enjoy the time that you're in at the moment and not, you know, not worry and not stress about the things that are going on, which can, you can easily allow happen. And so, you know, I care for my mom um, on a regular basis as well during the week. So it's just enjoying the now of things as well. And I think that's, that's really important. And then. You know, it's good to have an aim, but you don't need to be racing towards that. Um it'll happen. Wise yeah. words.
3: Wise yeah. words to end on. Cool. Well thank you so much.
1: Great yeah. to see and talk to you yeah. again. Yeah, definitely. It's always a pleasure. Dyed Green is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.
3: Dyed Green is a project of Bog and Thunder, whose mission it is to highlight the best of Irish food and culture through food tours, events, and media. Find out more at bogandthunder.com.
1: We'd love to hear from you. If you have any story suggestions, questions, or things you'd like to share in response to our broadcast, you can email us directly at dyed green at heritageradionetwork.org.